Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Fifty years of Grease the Musical. What an extraordinary thing. I recently had the honor of sitting down for a live event in Bryan Park with its original director and producer. And in the audience were so many of the original cast members there to just share in the joy of the release of this book called Grease, Tell Me More, Tell Me More, which chronicles the experience of what it was to bring this tiny little show that started in Chicago to New York then to Broadway, then to a major motion picture. So many incredible stars, both on screen and on stage, began their careers, not just John Travolta, um, by being a part of Greece, but Mary Lou Henner and Barry Bostwick and Treat Williams and Jerry Zachs, Walter Bobby. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And it was really thrilling to just hear so many of the stories that are shared in this glorious book. But for now, it is my honor to present a 50 Years of Greece tribute at my live event in Bryant Park. Here we go. A-OK. A-OK. I am so thrilled to have Ken Weissman, the original producer, and Tom Moore, the original director of a musical celebrating its 50th anniversary, Grease. Yay! 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 Yeah! <laughs> ho, ho, ho! By the way, folks listening at home, there was no one holding a sign saying applaud. That was organic, <laughs> loving, passionate. Thank you for the show. The book that we are here to celebrate today is called Grease, Tell Me More, Tell Me More. It is a collection of stories and memories from hundreds of creators involved with this legendary show. It includes stories from names you recognize like John Travolta, Richard Gere, Mary Lou Henner, Peter Gallagher, so many more, too many to mention right now, but all have gone on to have just the most glorious careers. But today, I have with me Tom Moore and Ken Waisman. I want to welcome you to the reading room at Bryan Park. And we are so fortunate to have you guys here um, in this cultural center that lives in the center of our great city that that celebrates artists like you and the people who bring the arts to the stage. Um, I want to go back to, if if you'll let me, it's it's probably more than 50 years now since you actually saw the source material in Chicago. So can you just tell us... Yeah, eat the mic. So get comfortable and bring the mic to you. I want you guys to like settle in because we have a lot of questions for you today. And I want you to be comfortable. Tell me what you saw. First of all, let's even go back. Why were you in Chicago seeing that production at all? Well, my college roommate, Phil Markin, 
had become a dentist. He, he was also a friend in high school. And um, he had become a dentist, and that summer of 1971, he was taking an orthodontry course in Chicago. So all of a sudden, I get a call. He said, my wife and I went to see this show, a play with some music that sounded just like the music when we were in high school. And it was all about those drape and drapettes that hung out behind our high school in Baltimore. We never called them Baltimore greasers. We were special, you know. We called them drapes and drapettes. He said, I think you should come out and see it. We had stayed in touch. He knew I had done two shows by then, and he knew I was looking for another show. Uh, I think you should come out and see it. Now, Phil Markin was the ultimate pessimist. He never had a good word to say about anything. As a matter of fact, it got to the point where he wouldn't say a good word about anything because he didn't want to ruin his reputation. So when he called me back again and said, come on, I think you should come see it, I said, you know what, if he's positive about this, I better get out there. So he and his wife met me at the airport and uh, we drove to the Kingston Mines Theater, which was in the basement of an old, it was a community theater, in the basement of an old fire, um, yeah, um, trolley barn. We walk in, we were given newspapers to sit in, there were no seats. Um, Mary Lou said yesterday, because her memory is incredible, that uh, there were some benches there. I said, well, we didn't sit on, we sat on the floor. She says, well, they were the good seats. <laughs> so anyway, I'm looking at all this uh, brown paper with the drip marks on it, you know, and um, I, so I knew it was painted by the cast themselves. And then the show began. And immediately, when they came out on stage, I saw my entire yearbook coming to life. I knew every one of those kids. And they were so real to me. And um, also, I knew that everybody in the audience that night, they were seeing their yearbooks coming to life. Because I sensed the universality immediately. Now, 1971, seeing something about the rock and roll 50s, it was like going back to the Civil War. So much happened in the 60s, you know, that it was like a long distant, oh my God. And it felt so fresh all of a sudden. I believe, as I sat through this 70% book, maybe 30%, you could go out and get a hamburger, you wouldn't have missed anything when you came back. But I saw the talent that Jim and Warren had, and I knew that I felt that they could take this little gem here and transform it into a full Broadway musical. So I met with them afterwards, and I told them how much I liked the show and um, uh, the songs that I really loved, like they were, they were there and they were in the Broadway show, Freddie My Love, We Go Together, Grease Lightning, Beauty School Dropout. Then they wrote a whole bunch of new songs, of course, for Broadway. But I felt that they could do this, and I said, the one thing you did 150% correct here was making me believe that the kids on stage did not take off what they were wearing. They went into an old jalopy and went out for hamburgers after. We have to keep that. So every choice we make, as I said earlier, director, choreographer, designers, has to be with that in mind. I felt that although I loved the show Dames at Sea, you were a real spoof, I didn't think Grease would work, could work if it were that kind of a thing. And they agreed to move to New York and we started making a few little cuts and shaping a few little things because it was like this. When I, uh, My friends who drove me to the airport, they said, why are you taking the telephone book with you? So, so we, we got it down a little bit and they wrote Summer Nights and a few things. And then I thought, we could show this to a director. So that's when we started moving. And uh, with Pat Birch, I saw her first. And then um, 
her husband Bill, just hearing this moth-eaten tape with some of the music, said, Pat, I think this could be a hit. And Pat said, but you came to me first. Don't you go to the director first and then decide? I said, well, you're right for this. And any director that we get interested in, if he doesn't want to work with you, he's the wrong director for Greece. So in the book, you mentioned the name Michael Bennett who was probably already a household name in the world of musical theater. Um, yet, yet this is the gentleman to your right who ended up being the director of this show. Yay! So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, Michael, Michael Bennett was a respected name in the business at that point. He hadn't done Chorus Line yet. Okay. So he wasn't um, a household He wasn't name. Michael Bennett. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, he was almost Michael Bennett. I mean, everybody on Broadway knew Michael Bennett. And he was represented by the same agency that um, j represented Jim and Warren. So uh, Bridget Ashtonberg, their agent over there, um, a forceful woman who always looked like she came in from a, uh, her hair looked like she came in from a windstorm. Um, she said, I think, I, and this is when we, were, we had to meet with them to get the option on it. Uh, they, were, they were the agents for the authors. So she said, well, I think that we could get Jim and Warren who already we sort of had a nice relationship. I think we might be able to get Jim and Warren to agree to let you option it and you know, say that they'd, they'd get along, that you'd be good for them. I think you could get us to say that if you hired Michael Bennett to direct and choreograph. So um, we said, listen, Bridget, you know, we're, we've, we've done two shows. You know, we're not like new on the block here. What shows had you done before? Oh, before I did Fortune in Men's Eyes, which Salminio had directed. And then Anne Miss Ridden drinks a little with Nancy Marchand, Estelle Parsons, and Julie Harris. So out of the gate, you and Maxine were, well, yes, we did were young, hungry, and making things happen really quickly. Yes. Um, I've been doing it all my life. I started producing shows when I was 11. That's another story okay. and okay. another book. Okay. But anyway, <laughs> but anyway um, I said, Bridget, what Michael Bennett does, and it's great, but it's real dancing with real dancers. I said, and we are just creating yearbook characters. All 16 people in Greece will do everything. They will sing, they will dance, and they will, uh, they will act, of course. It takes a lot of good acting to be able to make somebody think you're real and not an actor. So she said, but I, we're not gonna recommend, you know, we're not gonna recommend that Jim and Warren go with you. Uh, uh, so I, um, Maxine had worked with Michael Bennett when she was an assistant on A Joyful Noise, a musical he choreographed. So we looked at each other and she said, I'm gonna give Michael a call. So she calls him and she says, Michael, uh, I know you know your, your agent Bridget Bardo, uh, Bridget Bardo, I wish. Bridget um, Ashtonberg has been you know, talking to us about wanting to have you as the director of Greece. I want you to know it's 16 characters. None of them are gonna be dancers. They're, you know, um, but, the, but they will move. They have to be actors first because they, we have to make them real. There'll be no dancing chorus. There'll be, he said, well, that's not me. I can't do that kind of thing. I don't want to. Would you please tell Bridget? Enter Tom Moore to the right. story. Right. When Ken describes the play that he saw, it is very hard to like connect the, the artistic tissue from your talent and, and vision for that play to Greece on paper. So how fabulous that something about the production, he talks about the comedic aspect that you brought to like a really dark, intense story. 
I want to jump forward to casting because when you look at the like gorgeous ladies right here, the list of honorary cast members, the casting of this show in no small part from day one, even off Broadway, and then I want you to talk about how it ended up being considered a Broadway show and getting Tony nominations in a theater that was not Broadway one bit at the time. Talk about the casting process a little bit, if you don't mind. I would, don't mind at all. I'd love to. I love this cast. I've loved all our cast. Uh, but these, these original people are, are dear to my heart and, and very close friends. Uh, how we cast these, <coughs> we have been doing so many, so many press things that I, for the first time, I'm starting to lose my voice. The, um, uh, how we cast, any director will tell you that most of their work, 70%, is casting. If you make a wrong decision there, your play or project is going to fail. And I certainly took that to heart. In fact, when I agreed to do the piece, I knew that was crucial. If you cast these people and they became, and they became a warm, embraceable, vulnerable person, uh, then they could be copied by many people, but they would have that at the core of their being. I'm a big believer when you see people that the first moment you walk into a room is part of your audition. And how they enter that room and how they leave that room is crucial. And then, of course, we can work on anything in between. So tell us about your first Danny and your first Sandy. Like, just walk us through how you knew. Because you talk about, like, they are creating a blueprint for what 50 years later is still the blueprint for it this is material. It is, it is absolutely is the blueprint. Crazy for Cocoa Puffs, right? Like, <laughs> I just said 50 years. That's it's a very 50s being, metaphor. But it's being done somewhere right now as we speak. It's oh, one the, of sun, those shows. the sun never sets without grease. Uh, <laughs> exactly. So, can you remember or share any stories from those original casting sessions that got us well, this cast? Well, one of the things that's amazing, and it, and it happened very near here, by the way, just a couple of blocks away, but in. Uh, when when we had people come in for those uh, those auditions, it was set up so that they would. We were looking for actors first, singers second, and dancers very definitely third. That's why the brilliance of Pat Birch was so important because Pat can make anybody seem like a dancer because she pulls it out of the character and out of the person that you are. Combining those two, anyway, it was set up so that you'd read first. And if you didn't make it through that, you couldn't go on to second. No, you'd sing first. I take that back. You'd sing first. You were cleared then to, to act. If you could act, then you were cleared to go to the final part, which was, for actors will describe it as a horrendous moment, uh, I describe it as one of the best moments of the day. Because, because if you're not a dancer, audition. yes, exactly. And they say don't worry exactly. about it, you don't believe them. <laughs> yes. You are worrying about it. And mostly you're right not to believe them. <laughs> But in our case, it was one of the few cases. There are several stories in the book about that, where people just were terrified. In fact, a lot of people walked out of the auditions before they finished them because they were so terrified of the dance audition, or in the middle. But what happened was, which is not the way you should do it at all, in the first auditions is everybody ended up in the same space for those final dance auditions and the final auditions. And so they had to watch everybody. But of course, what, it's just a terrible thing to do to actors. But it was the only way we could do it because we had to see a lot of people together and we had to mix and, mix and match. But you would, <coughs> Barry Boswick talks about the fact and Walter Bobby talks about the fact that they saw what was happening, they saw their competition, and it 
it elevated what they were going to bring to the to the moment. And indeed, and and Patty Simcox, our Eileen Kristen, did the same thing. This is what they're doing. We're going to have to up it, uh, and they did. It, like Eileen talks in uh, talks in the book at one point that Barry leaned to her. They were paired at one point, and said and said Eileen. The contrast in our heights is very funny. Step on my toes, and we're going to dance that way. That was Carol. Sorry, 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 sorry. It was Carol. Um, and, uh, and stand on her feet. So, uh, so that, that's the kind of thing that happened. But it was in that improvis improvisational approach that the show kind of came together. And that's what the, that's what the actors did. There was a stroll that, that Pat Birch had them do. And Walter Bobby says, the stroll became the final deciding factor. How you came down that line in the stroll was going to determine whether you got cast. Tell me, about, uh, tell me about John Travolta coming into the show with his sister, from what I understand. Uh, yes, There's an anecdote about that in the book. And duty is the part uh, that John Travolta played. He did not play Danny. On tour? On Broadway? On tour. Okay. In the first Both. national yeah. tour. And then he, he, came into, he came into Broadway right at the end of that. And then, and then we took him into another show. Um, so he was not, not in Broadway that long. And so did it work that by the time the film happened, he'd become a big movie star? And that was how did that happen? No. Um, what happened was, over here was the other show that we did that Tom just mentioned. Um, big band musical took place in the 40s. He played a Jerry Lewis type character. And because he, he's really underneath all that romantic stuff, he's a real c comedian. He really can make it work. And uh, the producers of Welcome Back Cotter happened to come see the show. And they were taken with him. And they tested him for the show, and then he became Vinny uh, Barbarino. Um, when, it was, when we made the deal with Paramount, um, I got at a certain point. I get a call from uh, Gordon Weaver, who was the third in command, worldwide marketing. And he said, because we had become friends, and he said, Ken, I have to tell you this. I said, what? He said, Alan Carr, who was the producer that made the deal with Paramount, um, wants Donny Osmond to play Danny Zuko. So we went. So it also turned out that Paramount was not paying the option payments until they greenlit the picture. Alan had to pay them. And my lawyer reminded me of that just at that moment. And one was due. And so Jim and I and Warren talked about it, and we decided, no, we're not going to let him waive it. He wanted to know if he could waive it till later. And we said no, because I knew he would go to Robert Stigwood. They had bought the distribution rights to a movies, and he would go to him and that ask him to please come in as a co-producer and, and do all these option payments and stuff. I called, I was so sure of it, that I called Peter Brown, who was Robert Stigwood's PR guy, and I said, take Robert down to the Royale Theater so he can see Greece. John told me that he was signing a three-picture deal with him. And if he sees the show, because I knew he never saw it, he's going to want John to play. He's going to get this call from Alan Carr. I was so sure of it. So Peter Brown called me the next morning. He said, I took him. And the first thing when we left, he said, that would be a great role for Danny Zuko for John Travolta. And Alan did call, and that was the condition of his coming in. And the rest is history. When you started at, it was the Eden Theater? Yeah? Yes. So a broad, Broadway size theater. A Broadway, like the Helen. It's so the old, well, it's, it's a big theater. It's the old Yiddish, it's the old Yiddish theater down on 2nd Avenue. Yeah, but they played some major hits there. And Corio's, uh, this was burlesque, played for several years. And then Once Upon a Mattress started there. 
and then moved to Broadway with Carol Burnett, and also Man of La Mancha, which had started in the, uh, at, at NYU and then moved over to the Eden and then to Broadway. I remember why I know you. I auditioned for Moon Over Buffalo, <laughs> and I just have to say, you were one of the most lovely directors to audition for, and I'm sitting here going, why do I know this man, and why do I have such a great feeling about him, not just because of the work that you've done, and how you set up an audition room is what makes an actor feel like they can do their best work, and I'm remembering like with such clarity how generous and kind and amazing direction you gave, which is why you were able to assemble time and time again the most extraordinary cast of people. I want to say one Thank more you. thing about Tom. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that made him the perfect director for Greece was not just the fact that you know he would get the act, everything would be as we wanted it as far as the real reality. But also, I knew after that three-hour lunch, we had talked so much, that Tom was very good at working with writers to reshape, rethink, cut, whatever. Not all directors have that gift. Right. But in musicals, you really need it. And I recognize that. So it was a double whammy. You know, he was the one that would make the, the show what we wanted, and also he could work with the authors in the way a director, I think, should. How did you understand how to make this the play, the part of the story, First of all, I have Happy. to thank you for that, for that compliment. That's a nice thing to hear. You know, as you, as you move through these, it's, it turns out 50 years. It means a great deal when you hear from somebody that you never really got to meet that they had a positive experience with you. Yeah. I was telling the cast at, at our 50th anniversary celebration that everything is bringing me to tears. Well, you just brought me to tears. Thank you very much. Well, it brought me to tears when I didn't get the role, but that's all the story. But I love A lot of people didn't get the role. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. It all works out in the end exactly. Yes, it did, and here you are. How it is meant to, exactly, because exactly. here we are. Um, Talk about sort of having this source material, being on the airplane that you talked about early on and going, did I talk him out of hiring me? How did you understand so beautifully how to curate and create a story, not just because the songs are so memorable, we root for these people. All of these songs where we wept at beauty school dropout like and laughed, like the ability to have pathos and hilarity and all of that and and not just the idea of I want it to feel real but but it did well it uh, we we the two uh, the several things there we we aimed for we aimed for a reality of sorts it could not be a simpler plot it's boy new beats girl except reversed and that whole story but again it's based on caring for the people mm -hmm. and it's that's why with casting Carol and and Barry Bostwick I mean, Carol brought that, that, that humanity to it, and Barry brought that verve, that cockiness of the young man. It's putting those together, and to a certain extent, because this group was all approximately the same age, we were all finding it together. And we thought we had found a lot of things, and then the previews told us that, no, you didn't. Right. <laughs> uh, that right. that uh, we have to fix some things. But it was a, I can truly say that in the rehearsal room, and not all rehearsal rooms are this way, it was a joy from start to finish because they were extraordinarily fertile and they were extraordinarily creative in terms of what they'd come up with and extraordinarily willing to keep trying. Do you know? So, no, that doesn't work. Let's try this. S yes, what go were ahead. Jim and Warren like as a, as a duo? 
they're 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 great. They're 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 a marvelous couple, because uh, because Jim's kind of raucous and out there and telling the stories, and Jim's very laid back and very Warren. droll. Warren, yeah, Warren sorry. Uh, I'll get my name straight by the end of the interview. Uh, the uh, and it uh, and they're fun to see. But they were very protective of their material, obviously. Now. That being said, they were very open when we worked together. Those were good sessions. There wasn't any reluctance on their part. There's a picture in the book of, of something that's, that's called the late lamented bum scene. Uh, and when we, when we were working on things, we were having to cut it down from 75% book. That's a lot. And those scenes, those scenes from 20 to 20, you know, to, to you know, reversing the, the ratio. But those scenes meant something to Jim. They were his high school memories. So it wasn't just cutting dialogue, it was cutting his life. Right. And that was tough for him. And it, it stayed tough for him. And quite frankly, I think it stays tough for him with every revival that happens. Because uh, I was talking to uh, uh, the, the critic of the London Telegraph, because he was doing an article for, for us and for the fifth revival in London. Unbelievable. They just keep going. And uh, I was talking about the fact that with every revival, it's become softened. And he said, well, weren't you the first one to do that? <laughs> and I had to say, yeah, I guess I was. Right. But we, we, I think we kept a hold on it because we tried, to, at least in our minds, we were trying to create a kind of a documentary of the 50s. The more it gets redone, it becomes more and more of a cartoon or it becomes more and more of a pastiche remembering the 50s. We were very close to the 50s. It's as if if we in 2022 are going back to play something in, in the millennial uh, right. into 2000. Right. I mean, that's an amazingly close uh, right. close yeah. relationship. But I think the reason the show has legs is, yes, the music is of a certain time, the costumes, but at the end of the day, the stories, what each person was yearning for is that's so universal and so of the moment. And so, yes, there's a period piece nature to this show, but I think it keeps getting done because... High school still exists. Well, right? it keeps like getting done because yeah. of, I mean, Carol, Carol Demas writes in the book about that, that she's trying to find the, what, what she cares about, what people like in her, what Danny liked in her. And I think that's what we, we strive to find. Yeah. And yes, I think that's why it's done. There's, yeah. there's an incredible story in the book. They took this show to Rikers Island. They brought it so that inmates could share in, in this beautiful show. I mean, the way they gave back to the community, not just the Broadway audience but into communities all over the world to share this with people who might not necessarily get to see it yeah, also it's a testament to the, the Rikers Island thing that was Treat Williams idea well thank you Treat Williams thank you Ken and Tom thank you to everyone who came out today thank you to Brian Park go out and enjoy all the things this city has to offer have a great day Okay. One more thing. I keep getting emails asking how to donate to the podcast. First of all, thank you in advance. You are the kindest humans. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. That is where you donate. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you to John Zaytoon, who is the talent coordinator for this episode. This episode of Little Known Facts was edited by Nicholas Clark. We record in New York City.
The little-known facts social media intern is Sophia Rosenbaum. The little-known facts theme song was written and recorded and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.